0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast.
1: Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds.
0: This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan. The Stud is here. Please welcome your cast
2: host of television and radio fame, Tony Basilio. 93 years, four generations. Feel it. Wherever you are right now, close your eyes and get ready to take that journey that we call the cast. It's another dimension. It's a place... Well, you just got to experience it to understand it. And if you've experienced the stud cast, you know exactly what I'm talking about, because it's 93 years, it's four generations, and my man, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, storyteller par excellence, is back for another action-packed episode here. Stud, how you doing, my man?
1: I'm doing great, Tony. So glad to be here. Good Lord, has got me in the chair for another week and another ride. I say, by gosh, saddle them up. Let's take her out on the road.
2: Well, yeah, when we left in our last studcast, you were saying that we're getting ready to get into a spot here as we tell the story of the sport we know and love and through your eyes and the eyes of your family, that it doesn't get any better than the 60s into the 70s into the mid 80s it just doesn't get any better than that we're getting ready to get into some white hot stuff here
1: yes we are as we progress on out of here we're going to i'm going to be i want to chronologically keep things in some kind of order so that i don't miss things that i i really want to to get into this because i think this is historical, what we do here, Tony, and and I, I don't want to leave anything out. It's just kind of like writing a book. You don't get but one time to print it and the one time to write it, and I want to write it and not leave something out. So we're going to chronologically work our way through my dad and into my time and Rob's time and Jimmy's time. And and those golden years of wrestling in which I begin to develop my own territories, then my stories will really pick up because that's me and i'm not then talking about what my dad told me and what my grandfather told me i'll be really able to give the fans on these rides every week the real thing coming from the horse's mouth so to speak and i look
2: forward to getting to that era started show 10 and we're getting ready to go to memphis and what a place before we do that I've never asked you if I could do this, okay? But I just feel like we spent a couple and a half months together, and you've always called the matches. And I've just one time, I've just thought, you know, I just want to call a match here with you. Because that's what we do. We try to present this. I want to give the people what they want. We want to listen to the crowd. I know the crowd. I know they want to go to Memphis. But right now, we've got to pull it back. You can't just give it to them. You can't just feed it to them. you got to stretch it out. You got to build that drama. I'm just wondering, will you let me today? Will you let me call this match? Now, I'm throwing a curveball at you here. You sound like a booker to me right now, Tony. I mean, heck yeah.
1: I'm ready to hire you, man, to run my territory. Heck yeah, you've been very patient here since day one, the first one we did. You said, Ron, it's your deal. It's your show, take it and roll with it. And we go in the direction that I've always gone. You know, you're gonna have to be the heel. You do know that when you're the heel, you are the, you are gonna call the match. So you may have to turn out to be the heel here because that's part of calling the match most of the time up to the heel. If you wanna go a different direction, I'm here, man. We're going to fill this hour like we do with every ride with just as much as we can pop into it. So you got something you'd like to do
2: today. Let's roll with it. I am going to be the heel because here's the thing. People want to hear us and hear you specifically, not us. They want to hear you. They want me to shut up. They want to hear you talk about Memphis. They want to hear you tell those stories of Memphis. And I get that because when you hear what the stud has for you, we get down into what we call in this state, the bluff city. It's going to blow your mind. Now, that said, in a previous stud cast, the stud went through and outlined all the territories that were under that NWA umbrella. And Ron Fuller has a working knowledge of several of these promoters, and he has stories around them. And I thought it would be really fun and time well spent, before we get to Memphis, to get into some of these characters and some of these guys that helped build the sport into becoming such a strong fabric and fiber of not only America, but the entire world. And I'm gonna throw a couple names at to you, Stud. And I want you to tell me stories. Let's go to a state that doesn't border where we are in Tennessee, but it's a rival in football of the Tennessee Volunteers where I'm at here, but it's a seminal state when it comes to Florida. And you mentioned it earlier and you about jumped out of your seat. When you started talking about the state of Florida, Graham and Cowboy Luttrell, and I was wondering if you could just share with me a story or two about Florida.
1: You know, first of all, before we get into this, you know, you and I haven't talked about this. You're going to hammer me with some things here. I No
2: prep here. No prep. You know. Let uh, that be said. No this is no prep. Whatsoever. No games, so, no gimmicks you
1: know, here. Is, I'm winging it right off the top of my head, but if you were going to start doing this, that's a great place to start. That is my cradle. I'm going to call Florida. That's my cradle. That's where I really got to hone my skills as a young wrestler. And it wasn't just me, but it was a litany of great young talent there in the early 70s that went on to become monster, monster stars. Since you mentioned Eddie, well, let's talk a little bit about Eddie Graham. Eddie Graham is a father figure to me. I loved Eddie Graham like no one. He was a daddy to me, if there ever was one. And he was a killer. I don't know any way to put it. Eddie Graham's mind and his psyche was scary. When you say Eddie Graham to me, it takes me to the snake pit, which we're going to talk about down the road a ways when it comes to time. But it takes me to the snake pit in which there was the arena in Tampa, Florida, called the Sportatorium, where we went to wrestle and do our television each week on Wednesday. Gordon Soli God rest his soul, one of the best of all time. It was a monumental time frame, and there was that little ring that sat there all week long in one of the hottest buildings in America with the TV lights roiling you and temperature outside 98 degrees, the humidity at 90% and no windows and, and very little air. It was a horrible building to have to work in but it had some of the best wrestling shows brought out of there in the world. Eddie and Cowboy Luttrell were main stockholders there. Later on my dad becomes part of that back in 1970 when i went there and in 71 or so when we started doing the snake pit thing we used to bring guys in there if you wanted to be if you were a mark and thought that wrestling wasn't real and thought that you had ability to just be a wrestler i've seen it on tv i'd be a wrestler. i'm tough as you guys then it was open game for anyone that wanted to come into that sportatorium the building was called and having an ability to, to wrestle a wrestler and see how tough you were that was the aura of the snake pit and the name was so appropriate because eddie was the he was kind of like the head snake he owned the company and he loved it when this happened he knew in advance you had to make a reservation down and show your skills and those skills were normally done around 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning because Eddie liked to sleep late but Eddie wanted to be there to witness the fun and not only to witness the fun but to make sure that the pain was delivered properly and what he did is he would come in there, were, there would be me and Bob Roop and Hiro Matsuda, sometimes Jack Briscoe, Don Curtis, Gordon Nelson. I mean, it was just a litany of people. You never knew who was going to be there. But when you got that message, like you need to be at the Sportatorium on Tuesday morning at 11 o'clock, you knew it was snake pit time. And they would bring these guys in. Sometimes it'd be one. Sometimes it'd be as many as five guys. And Eddie would stand there and watch. He would usually get to make the call. He would say, uh, for instance, if it's my day, he would say, Ron, do you want this guy? You know, and it didn't make any difference. You know, and some of those guys would weigh 150 pounds. Some of them would weigh 350 pounds. And it didn't make any difference who you got a shot with. It was your moment to shine. So you wanted to delivered the pain that Eddie wanted that person to feel and if you did not do it properly and if he wasn't satisfied with it it became Eddie's turn and when it became Eddie's turn it was scary I guess that's a good word for it you know what we did to him was all shooting it was all in the ring but Eddie's turn was a whole different ball game. when they got to Eddie's turn it meant that they were then going to get the hell beat out of him, just to put it very bluntly and I'm not talking about wrestling moves I'm talking about going crazy and he would just start on them and it was the first time I saw it I talked to, can't remember who was standing next to me and I said we need to stop this because he was putting the boots to somebody that was a bloody mess and I was like wow I'm right there and, and I couldn't believe anybody else wasn't jumping in and I said to somebody I can't remember I said uh, we need to stop this and he goes you kidding And I was like, I didn't know how to take that. What do you mean by that? And and it just continued. And finally, one day, I remember somebody reached in and grabbed Eddie by the arm while he was in the middle of the process. And he turned around and looked at whoever it was. And he didn't even have to say anything. I saw it in his face. It was like, oh, my God. You know, I backed off a couple more feet like, whoa, I don't want none of that. And he went back to doing what he did. I saw him do something. Uh, I hope we ain't going to take this too far, but I'm going to I'm going to lay it out there. This is all this is real. I was in a six man tag with Eddie and Tampa in the armory. And a mark came into the ring. And somehow he got through everybody else, and he got as far as Eddie. Now, we're baby faces Should have been up to the heels to take care of him. Eddie got him. And Eddie took him in a front face lock, and he took him straight down face first on the mat. And I was standing looking down on top of Eddie's back, and you couldn't see the guy's face. And I saw Eddie reach in, and I saw him jerk his hand out and i don't know i'm hesitant to almost tell it but i'm far enough now i'm going to tell it okay he reaches in and he puts his fingers in his nostril and he rips his nose off his face and the blood puddled there quickly and when the guy rolled over i see what it is it's like oh you mean that was Eddie Graham. You mean to tell that, me,
2: like, I'm um, not mean to be Italian there and talk over you, but you mean to tell me you're talking about a la Michael Jackson up in New York City when his nose fell off. He ripped up, the, he just pulled a guy, just ripped, he, there were he holes there. It,
1: there were holes there. Oh. There good, were holes damn. there in oh, his nose. Oh, oh. Yeah, I don't really want to go any further, but it was worse than that. What I looked at was much worse than that. It took Eddie to a new height, as far as killer as being that killer and when you have someone that is in charge of your business of the wrestling company and he is from that mold and you get to realize who you work for and what his priorities are and what his thought processes are you're working for someone That when you go to the ring, if you don't give a hundred percent, I felt like if I went to the ring and Eddie was standing back there and watching a match I had and he saw me be lazy or not give a hundred percent of what, that I might be one of those snake pit guys. When I got to the dressing room, it might be my turn. And I just wanted to, I respected him. Because I was scared of him, for one thing, and not just me, but so was everybody else scared of him. But at the same time, he was a wonderful guy. He was so nice. He was one of the founders of the Florida's Boys Ranch. I mean, he spent millions of dollars of his own money to find a place that boys with no parents could could live their lives and grow up, and in a good fashion. He was a tremendous role model in the Tampa market and in the state of Florida. They wrote articles in the paper about what a great guy Eddie Graham was, but the few of us that got to see the real Eddie knew that there was someone else inside that body.
2: Unbelievable stuff there on on Florida and Eddie Graham. You'd mentioned the word crazy before you said Eddie Graham liked to go crazy, which reminds me of the funks down in Amarillo, Texas. When I say the funks to you, what do you think?
1: Uh, I think all kinds of thoughts. I love the Funks. Uh, geez, I, I mean, those guys, they, they are classic guys. And they grew up like me, man, sons of a wrestler. I'm not going to tell a Junior or a Terry story now because I have so many of those down the line when we go to Japan. We're going to go to Japan way down the line here. And I will have two episodes on Terry and Junior and what type of guys they are. but I'm going to talk about Senior, Dory Senior, and I got a great story about Dory. I'm glad you brought him up. I haven't thought of this story in years, and I can't remember who told me this story, but they said that Senior had two guys working as a tag team in his territory, and he did not like something that he saw in the ring that they did. They came back to the dressing room, and he confronted them. Both of them, both of them big guys. I cannot remember who they were. I just remember the, the gist of the story. And the gist of the story was to give me an impression of who Dory Sr. was. And so Dory Sr. goes and he, he complains or he says, I You know, I don't like whatever you did and you're not giving your all or whatever. He gives them an assessment quickly of the match they just had and they don't like it. So When they don't like it, one of them says to him very bluntly, he goes, who the hell do you think you are or something of that effect? And that's about as far as he gets. The story is that Dory Sr. knocks him cold with one punch. The guy's just starting to mouth off at him, and he, pow, catches him right on the chin. And the guy goes down face first in the dressing room floor. Dory Sr. standing over top of him, his partner now, doesn't say anything. He stands there. Dory looks at him, and he goes, do you want some of this? And the guy goes, Yeah. And I can't remember who the two guys were. And I wish I could because it's really, really good part of the story. But so the guy goes, yeah, I want some of it. And boy, here goes Dory Sr. tears into this guy. And whoever it was beat the dog shit out of him. They beat senior to pieces and, and they, the guys in the dressing room drag the guy off the top of senior and senior gets up he's all bloody as heck he's staggering around in the dressing room and he looks at the guy his partner now is about to come to on the floor he's sitting up there and he's kind of leaned back against the bench he's been knocked unconscious and Senior looks at him, and he's staggering around, and he points at him, and he says, you, you're fired. He goes, you are not tough enough. And then he staggers backwards, and he looks at the guy that's beat the hell out of him, and he goes, you, you're fired. (laughs) He goes,
2: you're going to be my champion, by God. You are what I'm looking. Oh, (laughs) there's your folk story. (laughs) That's a great story. So the Apple, as far as the the old man was, was the hardcore champion way before Terry was, is what you're telling me.
1: Oh, gosh, man. Senior was a bad, bad dude. Senior was a really bad dude. He was in the ilk of Eddie. In fact, Eddie and Senior were tremendous fans. And friends, had been for many, many years. And they had probably worked somewhere together along the line to be as good of friends as they were. Because Eddie used to talk to me a lot about Senior. He really, really respected Senior. Those two guys were
0: really bad dudes.
2: 3 year change-up here. You had talked earlier, Stud, in one of the Studcasts about how none other than Ray Stevens, who goes on to be a great champion in his own right, Goes on to be a star out in San Francisco, but he started under your family, under your umbrella in the Gulf Coast. But you eventually had a chance, I know, to work with Roy, doing some research into you. What do you remember about Roy Shires in San Francisco?
1: I don't remember Ray Stevens very well, too, because I obviously got the chance to wrestle against Ray Stevens and one of the best tag teams that was ever came from Ghana, and they used to come to Florida in the winter and spend the winter with us down there was Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens. There is no better talents than those two guys. It was a phenomenal experience to work with those workers. And Ray got his training, got his name, made his name, working for Roy Shires. Now, I went to San Francisco and wrestled in 1985 against Jimmy Superfly Snooker in 1985 in the Cow Palace. It was an event for me. I really loved going out there. And I... I remember Roy Shire's oddly enough from the NWA meetings when I was first going into NWA in 1975. I became a member of the NWA, youngest promoter ever to get in the NWA, and I remember that the meetings were—it was a room full of wrestlers. All of them had been wrestlers, or 95% of them had been wrestlers before they became promoters, and. It was some bad language in there, to say the least, on occasion. And one that was premier and top of the line was Roy Shires. And I remember that Roy would get up to say something, and he'd say 10 curse words before he said a real word. I would scratch my head and go, geez, man, what kind of guy is this guy? So, it became a joke, and Mutsnick was the president, and there'd be a tirade. It'd go on, and he wouldn't even be mad. He would be just talking, and he would be the worst word you could imagine. And Sam would go, Roy, Roy, Roy. He'd like stop him. Roy, Roy. Roy. Can you please just cut out some of that language? Is that necessary? Will you fight and start again, boy. It just get worse and worse. So I remember they had a meeting one day, and Sam says, Gentlemen, you know, we have a lot of bad language in here. He says, I, I understand where we all come from. And, and then Sam was not a wrestler, you know. But he says, I know where y'all all come from. And maybe I'm asking too much, but... I think we've got to somehow cut the language down. We've got to stop some of this nasty talk that goes on in here. So it was like, oh, everybody's like, oh, you know, I, we don't like it, you know. And, and he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And he goes, I'm going to find you, anyone who gets up from now on and says a nasty word. He says, I'm going to fine you $10 a word. And I remember Roy Shires stood up and he says, he says I can't say the words. I won't say the words, but he must have said 30 straight words. Words, every one of them was a curse word, <laughs> and Sam has reached over. He has a pad, and I see him marking and marking and marking, and, <laughs> and, and and Roy is just running it off. He's not. He's not said a normal word yet. And finally, Sam says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" He says, "You're at three hundred dollars." He says, "You're at three hundred dollars right now." He goes. Now, I don't know how far you want to go with this, Roy, but if you want to go higher, he said, I'm going to continue to let you talk. So Roy says, Roy says, 300. He goes, that ain't shit. And he starts again. He does another one. And and Sam is marking them off word by word. Now you're at 650. It was like I was in the back. I was kind of like I had my head down. I was laughing. Like, this is unbelievable. After that, I think that pretty well, even Roy, when he got up, to, I think it was around $1,000 in that first afternoon, with a less than a five-minute tirade, he was up to $1,000. I think he kind of just said, well, Sam, I guess I'm on to better sit-down. <laughs> and I guess he finally got, Sam got a little bit of control of the language, but that's my memories of Roy Shire.
2: That's beautiful, man. And I'd say we got our money's worth out of you in our first segment today because we're about halfway home today on the StudCast. And how have I done here so far in calling the match, man? Because we're going to do some questions when we come back on the other side. And we've got some great ones today, so I hope you're ready for that. But what'd you think of my match calling there?
1: I loved it. I just love telling stories. Sometimes I forget all the things I know until something like you just did jogs my memory and you know, when when you first said, I'm going to ask questions about some people, you know, I'm like, whoa, I, I don't know about that. You know, I, how am I going to remember anything? And then luckily, I mean, you know, it just seems like, bang, whatever you say. I've got a lot more San Francisco stories, to be honest with you. I made enough. yeah Don Fargo and Bob Roop and crazy stories about San Francisco. And someday we'll get to those off the top of my head. That's my best Roy Shires off the
2: top of my head. It's fun stuff. When we come back, we were telling you off the top, first of all, that was not a work. That was a shoot. I I did not say to him before we came on today, hey, I want to do this. I want to take it in this direction. But I knew the stud would let me do it because the stud's been pretty honorable toward me as far as in other ways. And I knew he would say, you know what, we're 10 in. Let's do that. I'll, I'll let you call a match. And if he didn't, well, then he didn't, and I would have edited it out, and you wouldn't have known about it anyway. As it is, though, we come back. We are going to do some questions, and we're going to introduce that magical place in the wrestling world that we call Memphis. In the meantime, a brief timeout. We're going to continue after these messages from our man, David, who's holding it down. And, you know, we hear his voice, Stud. David an alabamian himself he's got the golden voice doesn't he my man? Oh he's got a great voice I mean I wish I had his voice to be quite honest with you, you know when he
1: says Tennessee stood I almost get goosebumps It's like where the heck does he get that voice from so and he's a great guy I love him he's a he's a really great guy and uh, what a talent what a real talent I mean finding him when I did and how I found David is remarkable. It's like
2: the good Lord's involved to bring me to a person like he is. The great David Summers will now have the floor as we turn it over to him. And it is time for us to take just a pause, a brief pause here. On your StudCast, TB and the Stud back on the other side after these messages.
0: You're listening to StudCast number 10, featuring Stud stories as told by the legendary Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, and hosted by Tony Basilio. This StudCast will continue in a moment. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, is constantly making changes to his website, tnstud.com. It's tnstud.com. If you go to tnstud.com and click on Gallery, you'll notice the addition of many new photos as As always, there's a reason for what he does for all of his fans. And now let's go to the Tennessee stud himself for this website update. Thanks,
1: Dave. I appreciate this opportunity to thank everyone for the tremendous success we've been having with both the Stubcast and the website. I've been telling these stories about my family members for 10 weeks now, and I realize that every great story deserves a visual accompaniment to make the listeners enjoyment even better. Sometimes a picture is truly worth a thousand words, and I think that's what it is in this case with my stud cast. That's what we have done for our stud cast listeners. Please take a look at the new gallery at Tennessee Stud, that's tnstud.com, and you will now see my grandfather, Roy Welch, his brothers, Herb and Lester, his bear, Ginger, my father, Buddy Fuller, the Fields brothers, Bobby, Don, and Lee, and my brother, Robert and I, when we were kids. All photos will have names and dates below them so that you'll recognize who the individuals are and you also see the time frame that we were talking about in that particular studcast. We will update the gallery regularly to match the characters introduced and with each stud cast. And then when you go to Tennessee Stud, that's tnstud.com, before or after each stud cast, it should make every ride with me a lot better. And I want to thank everyone, and I hope you really enjoy
0: the changes that we've made to the website and we'll take a good look at it. Thank you. Thanks, Stud. And if fans have suggestions about improving the website or stud cast, please like us on Facebook at Ron Fuller Tennessee Stud. And then leave us a message. We'd like to thank the thousands and thousands of fans for their phenomenal support. And don't forget to saddle up and ride with the stud every studcast. And please tell your friends about us. Find the stud on Facebook at Ron Fuller Tennessee Stud and on the World Wide Web at tnstud.com. For exclusive offers from the Tennessee Stud, visit his website at Ron Fuller Stud.com.
2: And we welcome you back on your studcast, Tony Basilio, along with the Tennessee Stud, the great Ron Fuller stud it's time for us to turn it over to the listeners here of the stud cast and you know what's incredible is the number of people all across the country who we're finding in all across the world. And today's questions are indicative of that as they come from different parts of the country.
1: Yeah, not only that, you know, I see on the website of mine, I check sometimes, and it's unbelievable what we're getting in the world, outside the United States. Our audience, it's a phenomenal. England is really hot for wrestling, and they are big time players in our stud cast each week. Australia, because I've been there, Japan. Japan is becoming a big-time area and a big-time market for our stud cast. And to all those people around the world, I'm so thankful that they are listening. They're giving us an opportunity to tell them about what the sport was like back in the days of, of yore, so to speak, way, way back, even into the 20s.
2: Let's get to some of these questions now. We'll start off with a Paisan here first. That's an Italian for those of you uninitiated. Joe Laciana out of Boston, Massachusetts asked the following. Please describe how wrestling rings have differed over the years. What's the worst ring you ever wrestled in? That's a great story.
1: It leads me to another story before I answer his question. And the other story is my dad was a welder at one time before he started wrestling in Gary, Indiana, and he learned how to weld. And when we had our farm in Loxley along the Gulf Coast, he was doing wrestling rings, building wrestling rings. Just historically, let's talk for a second about what wrestling rings used to be like. When I was a kid, wrestling rings were made out of wood. The basics of a wrestling ring is you got four steel posts and you have the side rails that are thicker. Back in the old days, they were two inches wide by 12 inches in width. And that went around the ring, and then on inside, you had these boards that went across in one direction that were two inches wide and six inches thick. The rings were, as you can imagine, hard. Because that lumber doesn't have much give to it. It also doesn't have much sound to it because it's a thud. When you slam somebody, there was a thud there rather than a, a ring there. And so dad being a welder, then because he would seen these wrestling rings, before I go, I'm going get another story I saw, here's an example of what rings were like. He was wrestling a guy named Baby Blip. We have talked about before, about 300 pounds. And I saw dead in the match, picked him up, and he slammed him, and it cracked the boards underneath the supporting boards. It was a big <clears throat> like that. So he reached down and picked him up, and he slammed him right in the same spot. <clears throat> it went even more of a crack, and part of his body disappeared in the ring. He reached and got him again, and he slammed him right in the same spot, and he went through the ring. The mat held him up from hitting the floor, but he disappeared. Now, he's 300 pounds, big old belly. He's gone. The matches are over. The night is finished because the ring is now destroyed, right? But Dad, that was a big funny deal to him. He's just laughing. And I'm sure Bunk's this knowing Bunk. He's screaming like, oh, my God, I'm going to get killed here. And so, so that's what rings were like way back in the old days. So Dad built one of the first steel rings and it sounds bad but it was ingenious and i worked on them as a kid i was about eight years old when we built the first one and he built it the side rails were two inches like that and maybe six inches deep but they're steel now and they connect they're they're welded so that they connect onto the sides of the post and then there's the three rails that run across the ring these were tubular steel Four inches wide, four inches thick. And they ran across the diameter of the ring. And in the opposite direction, you had the same type of steel rings, steel bars, four inches by four inches, tubular steel, that ran the opposite direction. So that when you slam somebody, the top row slammed down onto the bottom row below it. And you get noise. You get all of a sudden where you got a oomph now you get a wham it was magnificent and not only that when he made it and he started guys started wrestling in it they were like wow this is unbelievable i don't get hurt anymore when i get slammed it's a lot easier to deal with getting slammed on one of those rings his rings became the most demanded item in the country for wrestling promoters we built rings for territories across the country because word got out that the best rings in america come from the gulf coast down there they're built by buddy fuller So they would call us out of San Francisco and Los Angeles and Canada and Mexico. They said, we want one of your rings. We want one of your rings. So my dad began to build rings. So that's how they differed over the years. They went from wood to steel. They went from no sound to tremendous sound. And the worst one I ever wrestled in, without a doubt, Nassau in the Bahamas. First time I went there, I got slammed on that ring. When I went in the ring and I stepped on it, I thought I was still on the concrete down below. It was so hard. I walked to the middle of the ring, and there was no give at all in it. And I was thinking, what in the world is this? And I went back, and about two minutes into the match, I got slammed. And I rolled out into the floor, on the floor of the arena, and I... I motioned for the referee with Stu Swartz was an old referee back in the days in Florida. This was probably 1970. And I, I motioned him to come down there and he got out of the ring and came down. He was counting and I motioned him to come down and he came down and I said, what in the hell is under this ring? And he goes, I don't know. And I pulled up the apron and looked and it was concrete blocks they had built the ring on a series of concrete blocks stacked on top of each other. So it was literally as hard as concrete. So that's the worst ring
2: I ever wrestled in. You know, that, that the whole Bahamas thing reminds me of, I read a book, interviewed an author. He, was, he wrote a book about Ali's last fight when he fought Trevor Burbick in the Bahamas. That place was so third world, which is to your point here. They had to borrow gloves that all the competitors used that night. They had to go off the island and find boxing gloves to use that night. And they were putting this thing on a pay-per-view. So they had to helicopter somebody out and they told the fighters, don't cut the strings. We've got to reuse them. And they reused these gloves. I mean, think about that, Ron. Think of- <laughs> now you think about you out there trying to survive. This is Ali's last fight. You go into some of those third world places and you present your sport and you kind of do it at your own peril right
1: i'll tell you i've told in one of my stud stories that i do for jim Cornette's experience and one of them is the bahamas and i'm going to tell it here you know but i'm going to tell it in chronological order it is the most remarkable and unbelievable jim Cornette and brian last were on that podcast and when i finished they were in the floor They were like, I've never heard anything like that in my life. It's third world times 10. It was unbelievable to go there and wrestle in the 70s. And I can't wait to get to those stories. We're going to do them all here. But, uh, you know, some of those I have, I've talked about a few of them already. But that is by far, to me, the worst ring I ever wrestled on, Nassau and the Bahamas.
2: Concrete underneath. Great question from a man, Joe, up in Boston, Massachusetts. Wesley Hewitt, next, in Robbins, Tennessee, has the floor. I'm not really sure where Robbins, Tennessee is, though I live in the state of Tennessee. Perhaps the stud can tell us where that is. But he wants to know this. What was it like to wrestle Harley Race?
1: Oh, Mag, what a good question. I don't know where Robbins is either, to be honest with you. That must be a real small town. I got a feeling I do remember something between Knoxville and North Carolina, somewhere in the Smokies there, there may be where Robbins, Kentucky is. But I'm not sure on that, certainly never wrestled there, never been there. But Harley Race, I have been there. I'm gonna tell you about my first match with Harley Race. Then down the road we'll talk a lot about Harley. Harley is one of the greatest characters of American wrestling. He is bona fide phenomenal as far as stories go. The first time I ever wrestled Harley, we used to make television interviews a week prior to going and wrestling in the cities. And I remember The first time I wrestled him was in Miami, Florida, and I had forgotten who I was wrestling that night. That day, I went to the gym and worked out big time. I went to the beach and sunned, and then I went to wrestle that night. And when I got in the dressing room, Harley was not champion yet, but I had heard of him, but I'd never seen him wrestle. I said, who am I wrestling? And they said, Harley Race. And I was like, oh, man, man, I hope I didn't do too much today. You know, I'm already a little bit tired, and I remember that match. That was one of the longest and most grueling matches I ever had, and I remember on the end of the match, because I had never seen the move and I had never seen him wrestle, he set me up, he suplexed me twice. He suplexed me that second time. I was pretty well done, and he climbed up on the top rope, And I remember I didn't see him make the climb, but when I looked up, he was standing on the top rope and he put his arms down by his side and he came off the top rope head first with his arms down by his body. He looked like a torpedo coming in to sink my ship and he placed his head, the side of my head, between my neck and the side of my head. He hit me so hard with his head that, you know, I'm gonna have Alzheimer's someday and I'm gonna say it's part of it is your your fault, Harley, because he knocked out my lights that night and they counted me out. It was years before I got another chance to wrestle Harley Race. And I had some of the greatest matches I ever had in my life against Harley Race as time went on. Never did he do that move to me again. He never got the opportunity again Harley was a really, really tough, gutty, hardworking, one of the best wrestlers that ever lived. If you're out there, Harley, I want to say hello to you. Tell you, man, again, how much I respect you. What a wonderful, wonderful performer you were in the ring. It was an honor and a pleasure
2: to be in that squared circle with you. Love hearing stories like that, and we thank Wesley Hewitt from Robbins, Tennessee. Anytime you bring the name up of a great like Harley Race, we are here with you. We stand with you. Third question here on the Studcast. Shannon Fuller, beautiful Troy, Alabama, asks, Did your dad and your grandfather train you, Robert, and Jimmy?
1: Well, my grandfather, no. Roy, we were small. We were in You know, never was I around Roy much past, say, 12, 13 years old. So I wasn't at an age where I'd have been trainable, obviously, to do any wrestling during Roy's time. I would have loved to have been trained by Roy. I know it would have been great training. I know I would have learned a lot of shooting that I never got to learn. I would have liked to have learned the inner workings of what really – really made wrestling what wrestling is. I never got that opportunity with him. With my dad, it was a different scenario. My dad really wanted my brother and I, Robert, to be wrestlers. And he made it crystal clear to us from the time probably we were about 12 years old. I can remember living in Memphis. He built a ring and left it in the middle of our barn. We had a really expansive barn. It was huge. And they had horses. We had a lot of horses there, and we dealt with them all the time. But that ring was made for us, basically. And Dad spent a lot of hours training us to shoot. There was no working. There was. He didn't train us how to do any of that. We only got trained to shoot for the entire time. As a matter of fact, my dad never showed me anything but how to shoot. And that I respect him for because he did not want to deal with with how it's gonna be in the ring and what the difference is going to be. He wanted me to be tough and he wanted me to be able to not only protect myself, but to protect my sport. And he, he led both Rob and I in that direction. Jimmy got into a little bit of that when he came to visit us because dad liked the opportunity to take a new face and put us in there and to show Jimmy a few things. Jimmy had a great relationship with my father and my father loved Jimmy. Just like he was one of us, so my dad trained me a little bit. Answer to your question, to his question is, is my dad trained me and Rob quite a bit, and Jimmy occasionally. Roy, I never got the opportunity, and I'm sad to say that, to wrestle my granddad, to actually have him show me some things, and I would have given anything for that opportunity. But that's a great question.
2: So when it came to actually wrestling itself as we currently know it, who would have trained you there? How would you answer that question? Who would have trained you?
1: Actually, uh, when I really got ready to be trained to wrestle, it was a wrestler named Corsica Jean. There was a tag team. They were Corsic, both guys from Corsica. It was, I guess that's an island somewhere in the Mediterranean and corsica joe and gene were two tag partners and corsica gene lived in a little town outside of atlanta for about a year rob and i made trips constantly from locust grove where we lived across to where corsica gene lived and he really taught us our first training really in how to work and he was great i thought he did a great job with us and other people have said hey your training was really good he did it because of his respect for dad. He had wrestled for dad in several different territories, dad's territories, and he had a lot of respect for dad. And dad obviously had a lot of respect for him because when it came time to train us to work, then dad sent us to Corsica, Jean.
2: By the way, Corsica is it is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, one of the 18 regions of France located west of the Italian peninsula, southeastern of the French mainland north of the Italian island of Sardinia. So there you go, man. And you even learn geography here. And speaking of geography, to the west of us, now that our question and answer segment has come and gone here, we've got to pick a winner here. Now, here are your choices. Joe Lachiana out of beautiful Boston. I've pronounced his name a couple times now. Wesley Hewitt from Robbins, Tennessee. Shannon Fuller of Troy, Alabama. Stud Who's our winner this week? I think I'm going to do
1: your friend there, your Italian buddy from Boston. I really like the question about the rings. It gives me an opportunity to... To go into something that i probably would not never have talked about and got into and and what a great question because i'm sure everybody wonders about what a ring is really like and how they're made i think we gave them a quick little lesson today a little history lesson and wrestling rings and how they've evolved over the time and so joe look forward to that picture i'll be getting that thing signed for you and out to you and thank you very much and all these people on facebook what a great thing Facebook is. It's just wonderful. I have so many friends, and they just keep expanding the numbers, kind of like the studcast downloads. I mean, it's just amazing how many people are listening to us now. So if you want to ask me a question, you can friend me on, at Ron Fuller Welch on, on Facebook. I also have another, Ron Fuller Tennessee Stud, another site. Because I've just got so many friends now, I've run out of what one site is capable of doing. I'm filling up another one, and you can ask me a question if you'd like. If I answer it and I pick you as a winner, you'll receive a free autographed picture from us. And I enjoy this segment. It's wonderful. Wonderful, Tony. It's it's fun.
2: It is fun, and now we know where Corsica is. I still have no idea where Robbins, Tennessee is, but, Sud, I do know this. I know where Memphis is. And I know that Memphis is one of the great wrestling territories of all time. And I know that before your father, Buddy Fuller, went to Memphis, what passed for professional wrestling down there was a rather cheap imitation to what it became. And so let's here at the end of this one introduce Memphis as we set up our next stud cast.
1: Memphis? Well, we we'll are just talk in terms of wrestling. Just real quickly, I'm going to tell you how bad it was. Maybe that's a good way to start the, the discussion of Memphis. We left Gulf Coast, and Mobile area, and we go to Memphis. I remember going to the first match in Memphis. I was in the fifth grade, and I was used to seeing those Gulf Coast crowds. And I looked out there, and Ellis Auditorium was the name of the building. It was a beautiful building, a big old building there wasn't three rows of ringside full. There was probably less than 200 people in the building. It was the smallest crowd that I had ever seen at a wrestling event anywhere. And I remember seeing my dad, he was down talking to the people sitting on ringside. And I couldn't figure out what that was about. I saw him down there. He wasn't a wrestler. He was a promoter. He didn't start out as a wrestler there. And he came back and I asked him, I said, Dad, what were you saying to those people? And he said, those people down there have no respect for wrestling. He says, they have seen probably the worst wrestling imaginable. He says, I don't know how bad it is, but he said, I stood close enough that I could hear their comments while my guys were in the ring, because he brought his own crew with him when he came. And he says, I heard their comments. And he said, I went down and I told them, I never want you to come back to wrestling again in my building. And these were his crowd. He only had 200 of them. And he told half of them, don't ever come back. And I said, why? I couldn't figure out, why would you do that? You don't have but 200 people here, and you can tell 100 of them, I don't want you to ever come back. he said, because I don't want them to influence the new people. He goes, I'm going to change the perspective of wrestling here, and I can't do it if I've got those type of people sitting on the front row and making remarks that are going to detract from where I'm taking this. And I... Gosh, my dad was a brilliant son of a gun. He knew his art. If you had asked me, is this town ever going to be big like the Gulf Coast? My first answer would have been absolutely not. Look at this. It's totally dead. And what he does there in the next two years is wrestling history personified. He takes Memphis and makes it the best wrestling city in America, probably. And it's still one of the best cities in America, wrestling cities in America. A great story, and I can't wait to get into it, Tony.
2: You know, Ellis Auditorium is, is a 10,000-seat venue that was down there for years. It was demolished, by the way, in 1997. For those of you that old buildings as I do when I go to different towns and Think about all the things that took place in a spot. Well, Ellis Auditorium is long since gone, but take me back to that night. How many people would you say were there that night when your dad told several front row folks that their services were no longer needed?
1: Nowadays, after my experiences from being in a lot of different arenas and owning my own companies, Uh, I could pretty well tell you what was there. That night, I'm going to estimate there might have been 300 people in a 10,000 seat arena. Mm. That building, Tony, was, I love that building. That building was made totally different than any building I have ever seen in my life. It had 8,000 people on one side, and it had a stage, and then they had a huge concrete curtain that dropped down. Between when you went into the building at night for a wrestling event, as things grew there, that building became much too small for what he did. The 8,000 side would be sitting there, and at bell time, they would ring the bell. And there was another 2,000 seats on the other side of that big concrete curtain. They would ring the bell, and the crowd would kind of get up and excited, and then they would raise that curtain, and you'd find another 2,000 people that couldn't see that floor. It was awesome. And those two crowds would yell at each other. It was a spine-tingling deal for me as a kid. It was like, oh, my gosh, because you didn't know the— Two sides were full. You knew one side was full. You didn't know the other. And you know who was on that stage? Well, I'm going to give him a little bit bigger tease, Tony. You know who was on that stage on many nights watching that? Late on me. Elvis Presley. He was a huge wrestling
2: fan. Wow. We're going to visit the king in the next episode here on the Studcast. We are going to visit the king. Wow. That's it. You know, if you think about it, it's not surprising. You know, Ali's name came up earlier in this Studcast. And Ali and if there are two more popular people, athletes in the 20th century or performers than Muhammad Ali and Elvis Presley, I'd like to see them. But you know what's ironic is Ali loved wrestling as well and incorporated a lot of that into his act. And I think if you look at the King and you study Elvis Presley, I think he incorporated a lot of of what he learned in terms of showmanship as well into his act.
1: Yeah, it's truly a phenomenal story. Memphis is a great topic. I've been looking forward to getting to it. And it's going to be a real experience for fans who don't know the history of that city and the history of where it went to after Dad left, what happened to it, it's good times and it's bad times. The number of times that me and Rob have gone in there and wrestled in that city over the years. And Dad, one of the best six-man tags I ever remember having in my wrestling career was in that city, me, Rob, and Dad against Three guys from Australia, George Barnes, Bill Dundee, and a guy named Johnny Gray. Three Australians. Some people say it was the greatest six-man tag match of all time. It was nonstop action. I saw a little clip of that somewhere not too long ago. I watched it three times myself. I said, wow, what a darn match. It was unbelievable. So, you know.
2: Wow, you're getting me excited, man, for the next Studcast. I do want to say on the way out here, as our time is about expired, that please connect with Ron on Facebook at Ron Fuller Welch. Also, tnstud.com. The other Facebook... spot that we're growing ron is called
1: it's called ron fuller tennessee stud yeah you go there and like me you can't friend them because it's a celebrity site our numbers are just so big and huge anymore of of fans that are jumping on board and saddling up every week and i just want them to keep saddling up tony i mean it's, it's just the experience it just gets better and better for me i just can't wait till we sit and jump on another ride. I never know where we're going. And all this distinct nights in my memory, things come to me that i like your segment today when I gave you the match and said, you call this match. I mean, I feel like I'm getting a release here that I never thought I would get from being involved in something like this. I'm getting to tell My story and my family's story and the story of this business, not just my family, the story of this business, the history of this great sport. And I'm just honored to be sitting in this seat every time we do one of these stud casts. And I can't wait to get back to Memphis.
2: Oh, man. When we come back on the stud cast, it's going to be Memphis. It's going to be the king. It's going to be more of those stories You hear the enthusiasm in the stud's voice. It's palpable. And again, Ron Fuller, Tennessee Stud on Facebook, TennesseeStud.com online. You can find me at TonyBasilio.com. And if I can get one plug in, Ron, for something we're doing here now that it's football season – On Sunday nights across the Southeast, we're doing something we call Southeastern Sunday Night, which is a celebration of the football week that was, a look ahead to the week that's going to be. It's no holds barred. It's mayhem in the p.m. We're having a lot of fun with that program. And you will find us on Periscope. You'll find us on Facebook Live. You can go to my website at TonyBasilio.com or check out the link over at the Tennessee Studs page stud anything else you want to add as we get out of here here in week 10 man that's hard to believe that we're 10 weeks through this studcast
1: yeah it really is and once again humble i keep saying that word but it is truly my feelings i'm just totally blown away by what's happening here with this studcast every week had no idea that we would ever do the numbers that we are doing people are saying things about us tony the comments are just i read them and i like shake my head i can't believe how well we are being accepted and and what we do is becoming important to fans worldwide to tune in here and hear not just the stories but hear the history of what we put our blood, sweat, and tears into my family for 93 years. And God has blessed me with this opportunity. And all I can say to those that listen every week is God bless you as well. And uh, and tell your friends and let's saddle up a bigger darn troop every time. Let's make that ride as good as it can be.
2: 93 years, four generations. We join you next. We are going to go to Memphis. We are going to get to the Mecca when we come back on your studcast. In the meantime, how about it, David? If you take us home one more time, the dulcet tones of David Summers, meaning unfortunately for us that another week has come to close, that another week has passed here on the studcast, and we must close another episode for the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Tony Basilio wishing you a studcast week. Have a great one, and we will talk to you next week on the stud cast
0: thanks for joining us today for this historic stud cast the true story continues next week so full nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the tennessee stud this is david summers saying so long from the great smoky mountains This studcast is distributed by Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.